0: Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North.
1: Coming up, a Florida judge strikes a blow against America's mask mandate for air travel, but in Canada, it's masks on airplanes forever and the vaccine mandate remains in place. Plus, Danielle Smith joins to talk about her UCP nomination campaign in Alberta. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to you all. This is another edition of Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show here on True North, The Andrew Lawton Show, Tuesday, April 19th, 2022. We have a great show up ahead, going to be joined by Danielle Smith later on in the program, the radio legend in Canada, former Wild Rose leader and also now United Conservative Party nomination candidate. Last Thursday, we had Alberta Premier Jason Kenney on the show as he defends his leadership of the UCP and ultimately his premiership of Alberta. And one of the people who has stood up as an opponent of him is Danielle Smith. And we talked a little bit about Danielle Smith with Premier Kenney. He had some unkind words for her, so we'll have Danielle Smith on the show today to respond to this. But I want to talk more broadly about what's happening in Canada right now. And and this is a theme. If you've been listening to this show regularly, I appreciate it very much. This is a theme that you've no doubt heard, but it's one that I think bears repeating. Canada is not reopened. Lockdowns are not over. Restrictions are not over. Mandates are not over. Not at all. It is right now April 19th. The unvaccinated in this country still cannot fly. Anyone who boards an airplane, gets into an airport, anyone who is traveling in public transit effectively nationally, when you're talking about air and rail, must wear a mask. And you may think, well, a mask mandate, it's, if that's the price of not having to deal with other restrictions, that's fine. But again, it's a reminder that life is not back to normal. And what's worse is that no one has actually said from the government when these mandates will end. Right now, we're in a period where the government's called it a sixth wave. And even though if you look around, anyone who's getting sick is just coming down with the sniffles. They're not actually dealing with any critical illness. We don't have hospitals being overrun. The sixth wave is proving to be even less significant than the fifth wave, which was already an example of people coming down with minor, minor, minor ailments. But the government uses the sixth wave as justification to keep us in this perpetual state of limbo. I played last week or two weeks ago on the show, Ontario's chief medical officer eyeing a return to the mask mandate potentially in the fall and winter, not even just for COVID. He was alluding that it might just be for other illnesses as well, like a mask for the flu, two weeks to flatten whatever the 2022-2023 flu season brings us. But no one from the government is saying when this is going to end. We've heard in the past, well, you know, an announcement might be coming in the future, but no announcement actually comes. And again, most Canadians are vaccinated. The majority has no need to look into the minority not being allowed to get on a plane. But it's a reminder that life is not back to normal. And this is where when people talk about the new normal, this is what they're referring to. I predicted months ago that the mask mandate is probably going to be here for years, especially on things like airplanes. It just seems like something the government will keep over people's heads. doesn't matter when you look abroad and see, oh, I don't know, British Airways flight attendants ripping them off in a video and saying masks are now your choice only. And then you have also the other thing that happened this week. In the U.S., a Florida judge, a federal judge in Florida, said that the mask mandate is no more. So the TSA uh, air travel agencies in the U.S. are no longer enforcing the mask mandate because one judge, that was all it took, one judge said this is no longer allowed. And this wasn't just an injunction. This was an actual judgment. Now, is the federal government going to appeal this? Is the mask mandate going to be brought back? We'll see. But what was notable is that all the airlines said, "Okay, (laughs) no more of this. We're not doing it. We're not enforcing the mask mandate. Where's the leadership in Canada? I spoke in the last show about Chief Justice Richard Wagner going off about how much he dislikes the Freedom Convoy. That's the caliber of judges we have in Canada. Judges that have been saying no, no, no. Anytime people have been bringing constitutional challenges about COVID measures. I'm not aware of any specific challenge on the air travel mask mandate. There might be one. I'm not aware of any. There is an air vaccine mandate challenge. Brian Peckford, uh, represented by the JCCF, challenging the vaccine mandate for air travelers, which still, in this day and age, when COVID is in decline daily, you cannot get on a plane If you are not vaccinated, no matter the reason, there's no compassionate exemption. If you're in Vancouver, you want to get to see, I don't know, an ailing grandparent in Nova Scotia, you cannot do it unless you drive. And that is a long, long, long drive. And I don't want people to forget this. And, and this is what the convoy was all about. And, and the convoy is proving to be a lot more enduring because they're having protests regularly in communities across the country. And some of them are just big old family block parties. Others have had a bit more of an edge to them. And people have said, why are they still protesting? Life's back to normal. It's not. And anyone that wants to say that what we are living in right now is normal is missing a huge piece of the story here. And we cannot forget this. We cannot forget what governments have done to us. And governments don't want us to forget it, by the way. That's why they keep dangling it over our head. They're not saying we're open for good, even when they did. I mean, this was Jason Kenney's big downfall last summer. He says Alberta's open for summer and it proved to be only summer and not even the whole summer before another wave of restrictions came in place. Ontario government policy seems to be right now get us onto the other side of Ontario's election next month and then once we're on the other side of the election all of a sudden it doesn't matter what they do to us they can uh, do two weeks to flatten the curve more mass mandates they can do it all back because at that point they don't need to face the voters and what we're seeing right now is the longer it goes on the less likely people are to say anything about it And I've said this time and time again, the mask mandate is particularly insidious because when people look at the mask mandate, they see something that can be framed as a minor concession. It's just a piece of little cloth or paper over your head. What's the big deal? This is what mask defenders say. Anytime you criticize the mask mandate, the backlash you get is always so snide of people that say, oh, well, you know what, what you're so traumatized that you can't even wear a mask in your face. It's like people are trying to say it's no big deal, but it is a big deal. Not being able to show your face in public is a big deal. Someone being able to uh, show you their face in public, that's a big deal. As far as air travel goes, I mean, it's the epitome of a first world problem, but it's a legit, legitimate challenge. If you've flown recently, which I have because I've covered events uh, across the country, uh, what happens is on, I don't know if it's the same on WestJet, but on Air Canada, they give you an announcement that says you are have to keep your mask on at all times, except for when you're eating, drinking, or taking oral medication. We'd ask you to finish all food and beverage within a 15 minute period. So they don't want people to do what uh, there was some British guy that did a while ago, which was like, you just have like a big jar of Pringles and you just take like, you know, one every 60 seconds and keep your mask off the whole flight. They're, they're now telling you, you've got to eat all your food and beverage, whatever that is. Maybe it's, you know, your little tiny coffee and your bag of peanuts. You have to eat that in 15 minutes. You can't just nurse the whole thing to keep your mask off. So if you're on a transatlantic flight, if you're even on a flight across the country from Toronto to Vancouver, you're, you're dealing with hours wearing a mask. And it is a big deal because that is just not the way that we are supposed to function in society. And the fascinating thing now is that if you're flying anywhere else in the world, you're landing in a free place. You're keeping your mask on for the threat of being fined by Transport Canada and put on the no-fly list. And then you land in England and you just rip the mask off and do whatever you want. You land in Florida now and you just rip the mask off and do whatever you want. Now, interest, I, I would have to check this. If you fly with an American airline from Toronto to Miami or something like that, I don't know at what point you can take the mask off. Do you have to take the mask off? Uh, you have to wait until you're in U.S. airspace. Do you have to uh, keep it on for the whole flight? I don't know. Certain, and then the same would go to the reverse. If you gonna get on a plane in Miami with American Airlines or United or something like that, at what point do you need to put the mask on? Because that's not Canadian jurisdiction directly, although obviously Canada runs it. But if, if there is a difference there, and again, I haven't looked it up yet, but I think what's going to happen is people are going to stop flying with Canadian airlines if they're doing international, when it's going to be just a better experience anywhere else. Now, the vaccine mandate, that still applies. That applies to any commercial airline taking, pl- taking off from a Canadian airport, whether it's Lufthansa or uh, United or Air Canada, it doesn't matter. Uh, The mask mandate I'm I'm kind of interested in, just as we see the fine-tuning of the details in the U.S., but never let anyone tell you it's not a big deal, because anytime you are just no longer able to live your life the way you always had, normalcy is being reshaped. Normalcy is being reshaped, and I, as a fully vaccinated person, continue to stand up for the rights of the unvaccinated, because if you don't stand up for other people's rights, your rights aren't there for you. And and I'm also very aware, as any vaccinated person should be, that it's only a matter of time if you allow this world to continue to grow before, you know, your two doses aren't enough, your three doses aren't enough, your four doses aren't enough, you need to get your annual booster if you want to fly, you need to get your flu shot if you want to fly, you need to make sure that your HPV vaccine is up to date, if you want to go see the massage therapist, whatever the, I mean, that that depends what you're doing with the massage therapist I get. Bad example, bad example. The point is, is that once government creates this infrastructure, it wants to perpetually empower itself to keep this going. And that was why people were very nervous, justifiably so, when the federal government was giving provinces millions of dollars to come up with these infrastructure programs for provincial federal vaccine passports. And Alberta, I mean, they basically said the only reason they're keeping their proof of vaccination system in place, not for businesses, was because people needed it to travel. So the federal government basically forced provinces, even those who didn't want vaccine passports, to keep issuing them to keep issuing them in some form. And this is what basically allows private businesses to say, we need your proof of vaccination because they know that you still can access that paperwork. Because if you're traveling to some other country, that other country might ask you if you've been vaccinated and you shouldn't, as a Canadian, not be able to provide that if that's what you want to do, if if you want to go somewhere that has a mandate in place. But increasingly everywhere around the world, is stripping away not just their vaccine passports, but everything, everything. In England, life has gone back to normal. I don't even think in public transit in England right now, you need to wear your mask. In the US, public transit mask mandate is gone by court order. Maybe not permanently, but it is gone. I hope it's gone permanently, and I think it will be, because I do not think this is going to be the hill that Joe Biden and the White House want to die on. But in Canada, not a whiff of when it will happen. And it's so strange because when a guy talking into his microphone needs to tell you life is not back to normal, you may think, well, that's weird. If it feels normal, it is. And a lot of you are, are probably well aware of this because I know I have a lot of people that have reached out to me who are unvaccinated, who can't travel. Life has not gone back to normal for them. And what I'm saying to you is that I haven't forgotten about you and I haven't forgotten about your rights, even if the government wants to pretend that you don't exist. We've got to take a quick break here. When we come back, we'll talk to Danielle Smith here on The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Last week, we spoke to Premier Jason Kenney, who is defending his leadership. Right now, United Conservative Party members are voting by mail about whether Jason Kenney has their confidence to stay on as leader. And interestingly enough, I I asked Premier Kenny what he thinks a win is, because historically in a leadership, uh, you want in a leadership review to have 60, maybe even 70% of your members back you. But he was saying 50% plus one, that's a mandate. And I I think there are some lower expectations coming there. Nevertheless, that's what we talked about. And and Jason Kenney has been taking aim at other people in his party who are taking aim at him. Two notable examples of this are Brian Jean, the former Wild Rose leader, who's now the UCP MLA in uh, Fort McMurray, Lacklebish. I can't remember the order of the, the riding name or something like that and he won in a by-election, again saying he wants to remove and replace Jason Kenny. and then a couple of weeks ago Danielle Smith announced that she was seeking the nomination in livingston Macleod for the UCP, and she also said if the leadership of the party becomes available, she will seek that as well, but in the meantime, seeking the nomination in livingston Macleod, just south of Alberta, covering I think Okotoks and High River, all that area, beautiful part of the province and the country, and any case, enough about geography it's good to have Danielle Smith on the show show again. Danielle thanks so much for your time. Nice to talk to you too Andrew. Now I have to just put it out there I mean you and I have known each other for many years we used to work for the the same company and I I had the chance to guest host for you on a number of occasions we're also involved in the uh, conservatives who care and libertarians who care Uh, projects. We've spoken at conferences together. So so we go way back and I I don't want my listeners to to think otherwise here, but why go back into politics now? You've just been doing so much since you uh, left uh, as leader of the Wild Rose and and ultimately were were unsuccessful in your nomination as a PC candidate. Like, why are you getting back into this?
2: My husband asked me the same thing. Maybe I'm just a glutton for punishment. Part of it is, you know, I've always been in public policy advocacy. When I think about the common thread, through my political and media and business advocacy career it really has been trying to identify really good public policy to move things along mostly in alberta i have done a bit on federal policy and and some on municipal policy too which i find interesting but provincial politics and provincial policy has always appealed to me and so i i have had three bouts as a business advocate i was the a property rights advocate in my initial uh, days when I first came back after being an intern at the Fraser Institute. Then I did advocacy for small business with CFIB, and then more recently for mid-sized private businesses with Alberta Enterprise Group. I've been in the media several times. I've done radio and television, prints and podcasting, and I've been in politics twice. So I was a, an, a school board trustee as, as well as being a, a member of the legislative assembly, and I wasn't quite ready to give it up, uh, even though I did get fired by the members of the PC party. They didn't want me to be their candidate. And I figured that was time for me to go sit in the penalty box for a while, learn about the things that I had done wrong, and try to, to identify uh, the things that I could do that would make it right. So I, I was on the air for six years, and it was just an amazing experience. I learned a lot and a lot more about policy, and it just seemed like there needs to be a few strong advocates and a few strong voices back in the provincial legislature, especially after the last couple of years that we've had where we haven't seen strong advocacy. So that's part of the reason why I want to get back in.
1: You've changed, as you just indicated there, but also the political climate and the circumstances of Alberta have changed dramatically as well. We have a united Conservative Party now, a party that didn't exist around the time of of your uh, last uh, political campaign. And you also have had the COVID pandemic, which I I think has shaken what otherwise probably would have been a relatively uncontroversial uh, Jason Kenney government to a lot of Conservatives. So, how much are the circumstances themselves thrusting you back into? politics right now?
2: Well, I think part of it is that we, we've seen with the Premier, and, and I supported him, um, and I I tried to offer good policy ideas. And I think he did some things uh, some things very well, especially in his first year. I think he's created an environment that's continuing to attract business investment. So I want to see those things continue. But he, he really went sideways on the COVID policies, and not, not so much in the early stages. A lot of people were making mistakes. And a lot of people were trying, it was trial and error. A lot of people didn't know what was going on. There was a lot of, well, let's see what they're doing and let's follow suit. But he he really could have taken a different path when he promised that there was going to be no vaccine passports, no vaccine mandates. And he took a hard turn back in September of of 2021, when it was becoming pretty clear from looking at what was happening in Israel, that the vaccination was wearing off, that people were just as likely to uh, to get COVID if they were vaccinated or unvaccinated. There really wasn't any reason to bring through this this uh, vaccine passport, there wasn't any reason to fire HS staff members for being unvaccinated. He also began to put pressure on businesses to have vaccine mandates. And that seemed like a betrayal of everything he said he, he stood for, especially since we look down south at the red states, particularly Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and South Dakota Governor Christy Noem, among many others. And I think there was an expectation especially since Alberta is a more conservative province, that we would have followed the lead of those states, and we didn't. So I think that created real problems for him in that he was he's never gonna win over the NDP vote. But then he alienated a huge chunk of his own base, particularly in rural Alberta. And even even the Doug Ford's government, I thought, did a bit more of a nuanced job. Same with British Columbia, did a bit more of a nuanced job in having lesser restrictions in some of the more rural areas. That was not the case in Alberta. And I think sadly, as it went along and the restrictions got harsher and harsher, it really was the the freedom convoy that broke the spell here. And as soon as the 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 massive uprising of just regular folks saying we've had enough occurred. That's when the premier finally changed course and good for him, but there's so many people who just think it's a little too late and the trust has been broken. So I I believe the UCP is the right vehicle. I believe conservatism has the right policies and principles that will see us through this next phase that we're going through, probably more than ever now, with the spending problems that we have, with the affordability crisis, with energy security and food security being on the radar. Those are all things that I think conservatives will be able to manage better. But I think we have to be realistic that um, the the conservative movement's in danger of of blowing apart in Alberta, and I want to do what I can to help try to keep it together. I've said I'd put my name forward for leadership if it comes about, If it doesn't, I still intend to run for the uh, UCP nomination in Livingston-McLeod and hopefully be a strong voice in the legislature just as an elected member.
1: I think that is an important point, though, because the UCP right now is in the midst of a leadership review. Uh, We don't know at this point what that is going to mean for Jason Kenney's leadership of this party by the time you you might get the nomination if that happens. How could you run and serve under a Jason Kenney government with all of these issues that you've identified with his government and his leadership?
2: I, I guess the way I look at the role of an individual MLA is different. Maybe it's because I come from the Wild Rose tradition as opposed to the Ottawa conservative tradition that the wild rose tradition is very similar i think to even how ralph klein and and um and peter Lougheed managed their caucuses back in in the day uh with the progressive conservatives here those are two of our historic party leaders on the conservative side and there the really has been a respect for grassroots decision making that the job of the mla is to go into the community find out if there's a problem and then bring it to caucus and if other caucus members have similar problems then it gets elevated to the minister and then if the minister doesn't get it, get, get it resolved. Then the then the, the premier is supposed to come in and help to resolve it. That is how politics has worked historically in this province. Uh, Ralph Klein was was uh, well known for telling his cabinet ministers that they had to get their policies past caucus three times: once in the initial idea stage, and then as they were hammering out the details, and then finally before it went into the legislature. Otherwise, it wasn't going to fly. He even would leave caucus. I'm told, so that the debate could happen without him, so that he didn't influence the outcome. And that's the kind of culture that we're used to having in a political party in the conservative movement here. The the, the Stephen Harper top-down, federal Ottawa conservative style is what Jason Kenney has brought here. And that is unfortunately one where you uh, it, strict party discipline. It's the twenty and thirty year old kids who are going around bullying MLAs about what they can and cannot say. And I think it's I think that's the reason for the schism in the party. Quite frankly, is that the MLAs have not been allowed to do their job. So I'm I'm pretty good at making my voice heard. I'm pretty good at being an advocate. I'm pretty good at uh, identifying local issues and making sure that they get profile. And so I, I just want to bring a bit of that culture to the party. Brian Jean, I think, incidentally, wants to do the same thing. And so if there's a few more of us from the Wild Rose tradition, then we might get a little bit more balance back in the UCP, which would then allow us, I think, to gain a little bit more traction with the public.
1: I want to play a clip of Jason Kenny responding to you announcing that you were getting back into politics and, and get you to then respond to the response here.
0: Uh, what I have said is, as long as I'm leader of the United Conservative Party, I will not permit a rerun of the uh, the Lake of Fire incident. Um, another Conservative Party was blown out in a election in 2011 because of a failure of leadership to block extremists from getting on the party ballot. Uh, that is a lesson that I thought people would have learned as long as I'm leading this party, it will be a mainstream conservative party. And I welcome voices who disagree with me on a whole range of policy issues. Always have, always will. We've demonstrated greater openness and tolerance for uh, dissenting views in our caucus and party than anything I've I've ever seen because we are a grassroots party. But um, there has to be a limit. And for me, the limit has always been a commitment to our members that we will not tolerate Hateful extremism that promotes uh, violence or uh, hateful views towards entire categories of people.
1: So as you just saw there, he, he's not only bringing up the, the Lake of Fire incident from about a decade ago, but, but also it sounds like calling your supporters and perhaps even you extremists, which I, I find quite interesting. Uh, you know, he talks about violence. I, I've never heard that from you. I mean, what on earth is he doing he, he
2: unfortunately has this bad tendency of fighting with everyone. He fights with his party members. He fights with his caucus members. He, he fights with the opposition. He fights with the media. And I, I think we're looking for a little bit more statesmanship from, from our, our, our chief leader and chief spokesperson. I mean, if you go back to 2012, I'm glad that uh, I was able to serve as a learning experience for everyone, every conservative leader who came after. But if we want to be frank about it, Back in 2012, I mean, Jason Kenney was talking about how gays could marry, but not each other. He also was proudly talking about how he uh, ended the first spousal benefits law in California, and so dying AIDS patients weren't allowed to go and see their loved ones. Um, he has has said some pretty uh, uh, radical things about the pro the pro-choice movement. So he is the kind of candidate I would have had to refuse on my ballot back in 2012. Now I accept that people's views moderate over time, and he has said that his views have moderated too. But uh, to to I, I'm was always a free speech advocate and a freedom of religion advocate. Advocate. I'm pro-choice myself and also have always been in favor of LGBTQ rights and gay marriage. So um, I, I, I would have to say that uh, I, I'm, I've always been on the side of freedom. And being on the side of freedom these days is, is one that I, I think conservatives ought to take. I think part of the reason the premier's in the trouble that he's in is he's not been on the side of freedom. And so I, I, re- I wish he would uh, accept the, 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 the that we're those of us he's alienated by his positioning are the ones he needs to win back traditionally in alberta you need to have calgary and some of edmonton and most of rural alberta if you're going to cobble together enough support for him to run around calling it all those who oppose him extremists and bigots and lunatics he's not going to win that back and that's fundamentally the problem here is that we're seeing um we're seeing a situation where the ndp are pulling ahead in edmonton they're pulling ahead in calgary they're pulling at even 32 percent in rural alberta And if we have a a leader that is going to continue to create division and disunity, it's going to create a bunch of new parties. There's a group called the Alberta Prosperity Project that is running around having hundreds of people come out to their events in rural Alberta. There is Paul Hinman's Wild Rose Independence Party that has pulled between 15 and 25%. You've got Brian Jean and Drew Barnes and Todd Lowen all saying they might create separate political parties. So if you end up with the conservative movement splitting five or six ways, And then you end up with the NDP having consolidated the progressive vote. That's just that's just a recipe for NDP government. So I think that the the premier, unfortunately, just doesn't know how to build those bridges. And those of us who've been trying to assist him and trying to point out the things that he's done wrong over the last couple of years, he just turns to attack rather than trying to find a way to to have some self-reflection about how he's caused the problem. I think that's part of the reason why he's polling so low in the polls and why it is he's facing this leadership challenge.
1: You mentioned, I mean, the social conservatism factor in, in Alberta politics is stronger than it is in, in any other provincial political environment and, and party. And I would have to ask you how this has changed in a lot of ways, because you, I remember a lot of social conservatives were quite uncomfortable with you coming at it as a libertarian, quite to the contrary of, of the uh, the image that Jason Kenney put forward. And Jason Kenney was the, the preferred candidate for social conservatives. And in the last couple of years, I, I think social conservatives and libertarians have started to align on a lot more things, whereas traditionally they haven't. And I think locking down churches has been a big reason for that. So just curious how you think the coalition is is shaping up, because you do have, as as you note, other options for voters that aren't happy with the UCP right now.
2: Yeah, there is a, a billboard along one of our major highways coming out of Edmonton that says that Jason Kenney has jailed more Christian pastors than communist China has. And I, I don't know if that's entirely true, but it does tell you that just because somebody might be aligned on certain hot button political issues doesn't mean that they they, they will they will support religious freedom. I mean, I th- I was appalled when he when he jailed Pastor James Coates. I, I, I interviewed Pastor Coates as well as his wife, Erin Coates. And then there were other pastors that have been jailed since. One most recently, Arthur Pawlowski. I think he spent a, a month in solitary confinement. And it strikes me that most other western nations have been able to get by through covid without throwing pastors in jail what why is it that we keep on targeting pastors in this province and that has something to do with the the leadership that we're seeing so religious freedom these days means being left alone and and i think that that should be the most important thing for for those who value religious freedom there are also i mean i have a dutch reform in in my riding and they're very concerned about um Uh, about vaccination because some of the vaccines have been created from fetal stem cell lines from aborted fetuses. That's one of their moral issues about why it is they don't want to get vaccinated. We have to be able to respect that there are some people who will take that view and not take the view that, oh, well, if you don't do it, you can't see your kid play hockey or go to a restaurant or travel on an airplane. We have to be, if we're going to be respectful of, of religious freedom and respectful of my body, my choice, then we should be respectful of those who want to to make their own choices about their health care. I think that's another big issue. I think that the coalition of social conservatives and libertarians needs to begin to center around pro-family issues, because I think what we're seeing is there are, uh, a number of people. I t- talked to somebody in my writing, for instance. His kids are going through the process of adopting because they're not able to have children of their own. It's costing fifty to seventy thousand dollars to do a private adoption. Why can't we? Why can't we talk about ways in which we can encourage more? women to make a different choice if they're pregnant and support unwed mothers and support women through the adoption process? Why can't we do what we can to make sure that we've got counseling for families that they stay together? Because we know that intact families are the best environment for kids to grow up in. Why why can't we develop an agenda around support, having those community supports? Because so much of what we've seen over the past two years has eroded community. And that when you end up with somebody in distress, if they don't have a community group that can support them, It can lead to terrible outcomes. I I think that that we can develop a strategy and and an agenda around that. And to to me, those are the most important issues. Those are important community building, family building, and society building issues. And that's where I would come down on on it. I, I, I don't know that there's any point in pressing hot button social issues that just alienate people. We always try to find the areas where we disagree. I think we should find the areas where we agree and we should press forward on those.
1: I heard you uh, deliver a talk a few months back on healthcare, and you laid out a very detailed and comprehensive plan that we'd have to have you back on the show for much longer to to delve into. But uh, it was clear that you had given some thought to the big structural and institutional issues in healthcare. You've been on this show talking about carbon capture, again, another area where you could bring a, a public policy focus to an issue that very much needs it. I, so you obviously have an ambitious plan. If, if you're going back into politics... How much do you think you can do this as a lone MLA if you're not the leader?
2: You can always have influence. And I think for me, this is what I've learned in my various roles in advocacy and media is that politicians move when there's enough public support for it. Politicians always get it backwards is that they, they go into elections and they, they don't do enough time. I think paving the groundwork for people to be open to their ideas. That, that was, was one of my mistakes back in 2012. I wanted, I wanted to campaign on health spending accounts, but we hadn't done any groundwork in talking to people about it. And it's a very confusing concept. I think anyone who's had a health, well, it was a radical
1: account. concept. I mean, well, anything apart from the status quo is just seen as uh, just a, a complete third rail in Canada.
2: Completely. And if I tried to campaign on it at the time, the whole conversation was, oh my goodness, two tier American style healthcare. And so we made the decision not to, not to campaign on that, but I've been talking about health spending accounts now that I've discovered after I got elected, all of the public service has a health spending account. It's part of their contract. So, if all of the public service has a health spending account, why don't Al- regular Albertans have access to that? And the, and the way they work is that you just get a certain pot of money that's deposited into an account for you, and you can use it for all the things that aren't covered by healthcare. So, your chiropractic and mental health, nutritionist, dietitian. If you wanna save up for laser eye surgery, maybe your kids need braces. So if, if we've been able to uh, already cross that bridge with our public service that they see the benefit of it, maybe that sows the seed for how we can deal with the two years of trauma that people have suffered through COVID, but also create an environment where we're, we're funding health care as opposed to just sickness care. And to me, that would be the beginning because you can implement a policy like that without it violating the Canada Health Act. In fact, I think it's actually more in alignment with the Canada Health Act because it's more comprehensive. It gives people the means to take control over their own healthcare as well. It's accessible, it's portable. There's all kinds of reasons why you can build on that. And if you start building around that concept, then you can start having the discussion with uh, the public about if we find some savings in our healthcare system, we can flow that through to you in your health spending account. Now, all of a sudden, you've got 4.4 million people rooting you along to try to find efficiencies in the healthcare system. And then you can have a conversation about well, what kind of things do you cover? In your medical spending account versus what kind of things do get covered by catastrophic insurance but you've got to start somewhere in getting the buy-in and you've got to start somewhere in getting that relationship between the patient and the doctor back on track the system we have right now where no one knows what anything costs no one has there's really no controls over what type of access somebody has to the system there's no customer service in any part of the healthcare system, as soon as you empower people with dollars, they become the auditors of the system. They become the ones who hold it to account. And I think you could do some amazing changes if you just start there. We've got to start incrementally and then we have to be able to broaden it out after we, we see the successes. There's, this is, I guess, what I have brought to my thinking on public policy because I've always been in startup type of organizations, whether it's been in media or, or in advocacy, and watching entrepreneurship. Sometimes you just have to do a pilot project and start something and build on it. I think the pro- the error we make in government is thinking that anytime you implement a policy, it has to be 100% perfect across the board, covering all citizens at all times for all reasons. And then you end up with mammoth programs that take forever to get to get implemented and a lot of mistakes get made. So why don't we try it a little bit differently? Why don't we try it the way people actually do operate? Which is you try a pilot project, you see what works and you tweak it and go along. I think that we could apply that kind of approach to changing the way we deliver public health services across the board, public health services, education services, for instance, look at uh, the UK. They've identified that these two years of education disruption have caused a lot of kids to fall behind. Why not create a, a little a little fund for for students so that they can get remedial uh, upgrades if they're having problems in math or reading, or get tested if they're falling behind in school and they need to get uh, some other remedial help? I think we need to start empowering parents as, as, as the payers or patients as the payers, as opposed to just sitting back and thinking that centrally planned bureaucracies can do it for all of us. They've demonstrated they can. So why don't we try something different? Why don't we try to build out our public services using conservative principles, free enterprise and choice and competition and empowerment of, of the uh, individual user? And if we can start doing that, I think we can make some amazing changes.
1: Danielle Smith, UCP nomination candidate for Livingston McLeod. By the way, if you win, are we losing you at uh, Conservatives Who Care and Libertarians Who Care? Probably. I mean, it's one of those things where... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> where people i mean i've
2: lost so many jobs now in the in the last week because as soon as you get involved in politics people say oh well we're a nonpartisan organization we can't be involved it's it's a, it's a real challenge i think it's why a lot of people don't end up putting their name forward in politics because um it, it is hard to just decide to go without an income for a year and so i well we'll have to see how it goes forward i understand why people make that that kind of choice that they they want to make sure that things aren't perceived to be tainted by politics but i I wish we'd be able to to have a a better approach that we could attract more people into politics.
1: Very well said. Uh, Danielle, thanks so much for coming on. Best of luck. You bet, thank you. Danielle Smith always great to talk to her again it's always fun to talk to people who have been on both sides of the microphone because when you've hosted shows and interviewed sometimes it's great because you can just like kick back and you don't need to really plan as much that's not a slight at Danielle or anything although you're also in the hot seat so it works both ways in any case my thanks to Danielle for coming on the show and to all of you for tuning in that'll do it for us today we'll talk to you soon in just two days time with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North the Andrew Lawton show thank you God bless and